0: This morning we are continuing in our series on 1 John. Verse by verse through 1 John called Walking in the Light. And the title of this morning's message is Victorious Assurance. Victorious Assurance from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And John has just finished giving us the first three tests of what a genuine believer is demonstrates in their lives how do you tell when someone is a genuine born again follower of Jesus Christ and if you do not have a bible with you here this morning you're going to want to put your hand up right now because we're going to be diving right in so put your hand up and the ushers are coming forward right now to give you a bible so that you can follow along and if you do not have a copy of God's word at home then please take that as a gift for you so you can continue to dive in on your own first john chapter 2 12 to 14 So if we remember, let's do a little quick recap here. If we remember, the first test of a genuine believer that uh, the Apostle John indicated through God's word is that a true believer will have a proper view of Jesus Christ. That he was God incarnate, fully God and fully man. The second test of a genuine disciple of Christ is they will have a proper view of sin and obedience to Scripture. They will have a proper view of sin in their lives, they won't make excuses for it, they won't hang on to that, but as the Holy Spirit reveals that, they will be quick to repent of that and bring it back towards the Lord for cleansing. A proper view of sin, and they will obey what God's word says. And the third test of a genuine believer that we looked at was, a genuine believer will have a growing love for God and love for others seeing the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ around them, and by extension, those outside of the church, in the world around us, your co-workers, your your neighbors, etc., and they will lay their lives down for them. And John's just been going hard. He starts the letter off by going hard. He's confronting the false teachers, and so he's giving them these tests, but now he takes a deviation from that. He takes a deviation from that and he pauses. It's almost like you look at this text and it's, it's just kind of inserted there. And you're like, well, why? why does that, it doesn't really hit with the flow that we're talking about. Well, there's a reason for that. John takes a pause here now to give assurance to the believers of their salvation. He's like, okay, church, church, I know we've been going hard for the first two and a half chapters. Now we're going to hit a bit of a pause. We're going to take a breath and we're going to remember the assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ because he didn't want them doubting their salvation through this if they were genuinely in Christ. Am I doing enough? Am I really obeying? Am I, am I repenting? He goes, stop, stop, full stop. And he starts to give them assurance. That's why this text was written. And you say, well, what is assurance? There's a lot of things in this world today that that try to give us assurance of things. A lot of promises that are made. A lot of things that we structure our lives around to give us assurance. What does that actually mean? So let's take a look. Assurance is this. It's just this. A positive declaration intended to give confidence. A promise. A positive declaration intended to give confidence. It is a promise. And in this case, the assurance John is giving them is the promise of forgiveness from their sin that Christ has given them. And not only that, not only the assurance of forgiveness, but the power and victory they have over sin in their lives as a result of it. Okay? The assurance of forgiveness, hey, get this, is the assurance of God's power. Awesome. The assurance of forgiveness is the assurance of God's power to those who humble themselves before Him. And this wasn't just important for Christians in John's day, but it's also crucial for us today. There's nothing new under the sun, and you say, well, why is this important for us today? This whole idea of assurance, this whole idea of living in victory, why is that even important? Because here's the reality. Look around, church. Many genuine Christians do not live with a right understanding of what the assurance of their salvation means for their lives. They don't live with a right understanding of what the assurance of forgiveness of sin actually means for them. And as such, they're not walking in victory and power over their sin. If I could sum that up, I'd say it this way. Too many Christians are living defeated lives. Too many Christians are living defeated lives. Because you have to understand, that's our flesh's default. It wants us to live in the defeat. And too many of us, genuine followers of Christ, are living defeated lives. And so we have to remember this. I love this. This is one of my favorite quotes ever. And the thing is, it's not just a quote. It's really true. Warren Wearsby said this. Write this down. This is going to set the tone. Remember, remember, Christian, if you came in here today, and if you came in here worried and under condemnation and your guilt and, and all of this stuff, your pain your suffering, the enemy's just pounding you, I want you to remember this. Write this down. Post it on your fridge. Put it on your phone. Set it as an alert and rehash it over and over again. He says, you are not fighting for victory. But from victory for Jesus Christ has already defeated Satan. Can I get an amen? Okay, we can do better than that. That's a big truth. All right? Can I get an amen? amen. Much better. Love you. All right. So, you are not you and I if we are genuine followers of Christ, we are not fighting for victory. Like, is this going to happen? Are we eventually going to get there? This is where assurance needs to be remembered of what we have in Christ. We are fighting from victory, for Jesus Christ has already defeated Satan. This is the greatest truth of all time, and this is our victorious assurance. And here we see two crucial truths that we must embrace if we are to live in the assurance of salvation we have through Christ and the victory that that assurance gives us over the power of sin in our lives and over the enemy that is behind it. Two crucial truths. Let's read the text. And in honor of God's word, we want to honor its authority. Let's stand. I love how you guys were already getting ready to stand. I just love that. All right. 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 to 14. John says this. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, what beautiful assurance is all throughout this truth. Father, I pray right now, whatever burdens, whatever fears, whatever sin, whatever condemnation, whatever guilt we're sitting under right now that was brought in here today, God, I pray This would be a day of freedom and victory, remembering the assurance we have in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Father, I pray right now, Lord, that we would cast those anxieties on you because you care for us. We were never meant to carry them. We cannot carry them. And I pray in Jesus' name that, God, there would be freedom through the cross of Jesus Christ here today. God, I pray that you would do a saving work today, a sanctifying work in your church. God, you would continue to manifest your presence among us today. Lord, guard my mouth from error today. Father, I ask for this, that every word would be from you. God, just take me out of the way. I have nothing to say if you don't speak. Please take me out of the way and say what you want to say to your church. Lord, we need you so much And I pray you would find a church that humbles themselves before you and under the authority of your word and doesn't reject it in pride, doesn't be a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, but God eagerly embraces it in our lives. Feed our souls with it today, God. We ask and change us to be more like you and to love you more today. In Christ's name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen, you may be seated. You may be seated. To live out my victory in Christ, I must first remember this. I must remember the assurance that I have in Christ, forgiveness. To live out my victory in Christ, I must remember the assurance I have in Christ, forgiveness. Look at verse 12. John says this. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are, circle the word are, because your sins are, there's the assurance, forgiven, for his name's sake. Now, now, the word there for little children in the Greek, there's it's listed twice in this passage and they don't mean the same thing. This is where word study is so important because it changes the meaning. All right? So this term for little children is this a general term for all genuine followers of Christ. Little children. Remember John used it before in chapter 2. He says, "I'm writing to you." And the term little children, don't you just hear John's pastoral heart for his church? his affection, his love for his church here. He's like, I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, flock. I'm writing to you, brothers and sisters. I deeply love you. And these are, these, as we are today, are in need of instruction. Are in need of instruction and training in righteousness from God's word. And John is writing to assure them of the salvation in Christ they have. And notice what he does. Notice what he does. What is the greatest way to assure Someone. The greatest way to bring assurance into someone is to bring them back to a promise that cannot be shaken. Bring them back to the very promise that is the foundation of their faith. And this is what John does here. It's beautiful. He goes right back to the, one of the most basic truths of the Christian faith. One which it is founded upon and it is this. The forgiveness of their sins that they have through Jesus Christ. He takes us right back to the foundation. And this one is so often what we fail to remember the most today. That I have been forgiven. I have been redeemed. I have been propitiated. Big word means substituted. My wrath that was destined for me by God, God's wrath over me, has now been taken by Jesus Christ. These are beautiful truths that we so often fail to remember. And the enemy works very hard to do it. And he's writing this because John didn't want those who were genuinely saved to begin to doubt, as I mentioned earlier, the false teaching around them from the Gnostics who were claiming you could only be saved if you had certain enlightenment and that Jesus wasn't fully man because all matter was evil. He's right, this teaching's increasing and it's flourishing in the church. And he didn't want them to think that their salvation, on the other hand, as he's been going on about, if you love God, if you're a genuine follower of Christ, you're going to obey his commands. You're going to love your brother. You're going to, you're going to humble yourself. He didn't want to think that their salvation was based on good works. Or by doing, to try and live in obedience to Christ. He's like, guys, yes, these are important. These are crucial truths that are fruit of a genuine follower of Christ, but your salvation is not based on that. Someone need to hear this this morning. See, your salvation is not based on what you do. It's based on who God is and what he's done. Okay, so he's writing to assure and to affirm them, and he's assuring these believers they're genuinely in Christ. Their sins have been forgiven, not by anything that they've done but through the work of Christ on their behalf. Look at the back end of verse 12. Notice he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. For what? Because of your good works? For his name's sake. What that means is, the Greek there means he's the instrument of your salvation. He is the power of your forgiveness. It has nothing to do with you. It's for his name's sake. He called you and he called me. Is I hope familiarity with that has not replaced the awe of that in our lives. Like so often we could say, What does it mean to be followed? Well, Jesus Christ forgave me of my sins, and that's totally true. But are we living in the reality of what that actually means? It's awesome, it's powerful, and it is life changing. Let's not let it just become some Christianese tagline. Christ died to forgive me of my sins. Yes, he did, but let's remember what that is. and Why does John start here? I love this because you'll see this on the screen. Howard Marshall, one of the commentators who I very much respect for this book is this. The experience of forgiveness is the center. It is the center of the Christian experience of conversion when one comes from death to life in Jesus Christ and is made new. You see, everything else flows out of this everything in our Christian life flows out of this truth right here. That's why John takes them back and assures them, remember, remember. Okay, so let's look. Forgiveness. Let's dissect this a little bit. What does that actually mean? We hear that a lot, right? What does that actually mean? The term forgiven right here, here's what it means in the Greek. To send away, to let go, or to release. To send away, to let go, or to release see this is what happens when a person hears the word of god and then by the power of the holy spirit he opens their eyes to respond to that he opens their heart to respond to that and then they confess jesus christ as their lord and savior they repent of their sin and in that moment <laughs> this is the greatest thing of all time in that moment christ says i got your sin i release it it's not a part of you it doesn't define you. Yes, our flesh is still at war with the spirit and we will still sin, but that is not our identity anymore. because I took it. I released it. I let it go. And I delivered you from it. And as a result of the work of Christ on their behalf and the victory over sin they have now been given, they can have assurance of their salvation in knowing that they are... Love this, love this. You know what else comes from this? Notice how John, in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. They are forgiven. You know what that indicates? Eternal security. There's no, your sins are forgiven until you sin this much later on, and then you're not forgiven anymore. You are eternally secure, in Jesus Christ, and you cannot lose your salvation in Him. That's good news today, Amen. That's good news today, right? And you say, you say, well, well, why is that? Because there's salvation. You got to go right back to, okay. So why does Christ forgive? What compels Him to save? Love, and it's not based on your good works. It's based on grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And it's not based on what you do for him or how well you live your life. Well, and don't we so often look at it and say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as that person, so God's got to, you know, he's got to do something for me because he's got to look favorably on me because I'm not as bad as that. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Okay? You know, one of, the, one of the most deceitful messages in our culture today is this. You deserve it. So around our table for family devotions we've started to say when someone would say you deserve it I said you really don't want what you deserve. Because what you and I deserve apart from the grace of Jesus Christ is eternity in hell. But doesn't the culture don't you see it? You deserve a break today. Did you hear that before? You deserve, I saw it on a commercial the other day, you deserve to have the best eaves troughs on your street. <laughs> what? It's all over. It's saturating. You and I don't want what we deserve. Because what is grace? If God saves us by grace, what is that? It is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's the definition of grace. God giving us what we don't deserve. And I love how, how uh, John Calvin said this. He goes... In relation to this text, you'll see it on the screen. Having faithfully spoken of good works, like we talked about in the previous two and a half chapters, lest he, being John, should give them more importance than he ought to have done, John now calls us back to contemplate the grace of Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. You say, How do you know this? Don't take my word for it, let's take his. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says this For it is by, everyone say it together? Grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift. It's not a transaction that you earn. It's a gift. Grace is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, I'm better than him. So, I What beautiful truth that is. What beautiful truth that is. Christian, brother or sister. I want to ask you this question this morning. When's the last time, loved ones, you just stopped? When's the last time I just stopped to remember the grace of Jesus Christ that he's shown you on the cross? To really reflect on it and be like, "Ah, God, thanks for the forgiveness. To remember what he did for you. When he became Jesus Christ, sent by God the Father, becoming fully man, yet still being fully God, came to earth and said, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you, Ray. I'm coming for you, Marie. I'm coming for you because I love you. I will give my life for you. And I will take that wrath that is what you are deserving of, and I will have it put on myself to pay the penalty for you so that you can walk in freedom and victory over sin and death for all time. Oh, grave, where is your victory? And oh, death, where is your sting now? Amen? When's the last time we just let that truth saturate our heart and mind again? And are you still living in awe of it if you're doing that? Are you living in awe of what that means? This world's a busy world, and it's constantly chucking messages at it. We've got to prove, be a self-made man or woman and do all this stuff. Are we stopping to reflect, or has the awe been lost in familiarity to you? Is it just a Christianese term for you now? What forgiveness actually means. Does your life reflect this assurance or confidence in the work of Christ for you? How do I know this? Well, some examples came this. In your thought life, when the fear, when the doubt, when the anxiety hits, how do you respond? Do you respond with an assurance that you have been forgiven, that you have a savior, a refuge, a shield, a father that gave his life for you, is protecting you, and is waiting for you to come to him with it? How do you respond when that hits? Or this, how about students? I know many of our students are on reading week this week, but they say this, how about in the classroom? When that, when that strive for perfectionism starts to try to hit, gotta be the best in my class, gotta get the A, because if I'm gonna get the A, then I'm gonna get into this school, and I'm gonna get, listen, God will open what no man can open and shut what none can shut. And if he wants you in a school and he knows you need certain marks to get there, he's going to give it to you. It doesn't mean we don't work with excellence, but it means our identity is not based on our work. Our identity is based in who he says he is. Your identity, moms, your identity is not a mom. Your identity is a child of God, a daughter of the king of kings. Dads, your identity is not based on you being the man of the house. It's based on you being on your knees as a son of God saying, Lord, I need you. It's based in who he says it is, who you are. How about this? In our relationships, when that hits, are we remembering when that desire, why am I not married yet? Why do I not have children yet? Why is this going? At that moment, right there, full stop, are we walking in the assurance of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that he said, because I have forgiven you, I am able to be your full satisfaction right now. And no other relationship can touch it. When that creeps in, how about in parents? How about parenting? When the impatience kicks in, I was so convicted with this this week. When the anger kicks in, at that moment right now, what lie am I believing that somehow God's assurance and forgiveness of me and adoption of me isn't enough? Oh, in the lust, the pornography, when you want to go pursuing that, what's going on in your heart right now in that assurance? What lie are you choosing to believe that God is somehow not enough and he has not purchased you? In the addiction, when you keep going back to the fridge or you keep going back to the bottle, or you keep going, whatever it is, what is it that we are believing? And this is what the enemy works so hard to get us to forget what we have been given, the victory we've been given in Jesus Christ. See, living in remembrance of this is essential if we are to live out the victory that we have in Christ. And the enemy works so hard to distort and deceive and lie to you about this truth. And you say, why is that? Why does the enemy focus? Whisper this doubt. Whisper this fear. Whisper. Here's why. Because let's just take a little look. We'll give a little snapshot about what forgiveness in Jesus Christ actually means. Okay? Gospel 101. Ready? Here we go. Five truths of what forgiveness in Christ means. Number one, I am absolved by God. I am absolved by God. I have been set free from the guilt of my sin. Boom. Absolve means to declare someone free of guilt. <laughs> I have been set free from the guilt of my sin. Jesus became the guilty, so in him we could become the free. We could become the free. He paid that penalty that we deserved and look at hebrews eight twelve says it so beautifully. God says, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Stop hanging on to it and letting the de- devil have a playground in your mind with it. I will remember their sins no more. Now, do you notice something? You notice something? I noticed this this week. Maybe this is just me, but our flesh works so hard to get us to remember our sins and sit under the guilt and condemnation of them, doesn't it? Maybe just me. It works so hard. Remember this? Remember this? You're a horrible parent. You can't do this, co-worker. You think you're a follower of Christ? You think you can do this? Look at what you did. And it just goes. And the enemy brings up like this mind Rolodex of all of our sins. And Jesus says, I'll remember those no more. You come to me, you confess them, you repent of them, and salvation in me, I have forgiven them. They don't hold over you anymore. Beautiful. Number one, I am absolved by God. I've been set free from the guilt of my sin. Number two, five truths about our forgiveness in Christ. I am approved by God. My sin has no power to condemn me. I am approved by God. (laughs) Think of the staggering truth of that. Maybe this is just me. Think back to your last week. How many times do we fall in the flesh? How many times do we sin? And God's like, in Jesus Christ, I approve you because of the blood of my son. It doesn't mean we're not pursuing holiness. It doesn't mean we're letting sin manifest itself in our lives. But it means that when we do sin, which we all will, we have to remember we're approved by God. We're approved by God. It's not a sliding scale. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hey, do you know what the Greek word for no is? It means no. There's no condemnation. Zilch. If you are in Jesus Christ. I just want to pause right now and ask, what condemnation are you sitting under today? What guilt did you bring here with you this morning that needs to be cast to the foot of the cross and we need to remember our assurance that we have in him? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have been set free and that sin has no power over you. Don't give it a voice. But it gets better. Five truths about our forgiveness in Christ. Number one, I'm absolved by God. Number two, I'm approved by God. Number three, I'm, adopt. I'm adopted by God. He is my Father. I am His child. I'm adopted by God. You, have, you and I, through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in our life, through His death on the cross for us, He's brought us into his family. (laughs) That's amazing. He's brought us into his family with all the privileges that that entails. The presence of God being the very greatest one. You're his daughter, you're his son. Romans 8.15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that term, Abba, Father, is the most intimate Hebrew term for a father and a child. I want you to picture a young child coming up to his father, sitting on the couch, just saying, Abba, and his dad embracing him and holding him close. And yes, we are uh, sinful people. We live in a fallen world. And maybe some of us here did not have fathers that did that. But I will say this, you have a heavenly father that will every time. You have a heavenly father that will protect you, that will love you, that is gracious towards you, that is tender towards you, that holds every tear in a bottle that you shed, that writes every sigh that you grieve with in his book and doesn't forget, and that will always, always, always work for your good and for his glory. That's your heavenly Father. Nothing else can touch that. You've been adopted by God. Number four, five truths about our forgiveness in Christ. I wish I could do a whole sermon right there. On that. Number four, I'm authenticated by God. Jesus Christ is my defender. I'm authenticated by God. Jesus Christ is my defender. Romans 8, 31 to 33 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, see that? There it is, graciously give us all things. There's the privileges. Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies not man. It is God who justifies not man. You did not receive a spirit of fear. You received, 2 Timothy 1.7, a spirit of power and love and self-control. God, in Jesus Christ, has made a way for us not to live in the slavery of fear. And I don't know if you noticed our world, but we live in a, in a world today that has a fear of anyone or anything but God. And they're crying out for this truth And so many accusations they're living under of what this world thinks they should be. If you just lost 20 pounds, then you would be acceptable. If you just achieved a certain status at work, then you'll be acceptable. And we're trying to justify, seeking in the world for justification. God's like, it's God who justifies. You who are who I say you are. And when the enemy is pounding away at you with condemnation and hopelessness, guilt and shame, we must, church, go back to this truth Of what God says, or it honestly, loved ones, here's the alternative. If you don't go back to this truth, it will paralyze us in our pursuit of Him every time. Because the enemy works in isolation. He wants to take you away from remembering what Jesus Christ has done and definitely from living in it. Beautiful. Five truths about our forgiveness in Christ. Number one, I'm absolved by God. Number two, I'm approved by God. My sin has no power to condemn me. Number three, I'm adopted by God. He's my father. I'm his child. Number four, I'm authenticated by God. Jesus Christ is my defender. And number five, here it is, ready? I'm affirmed by God. I am who he says I am. I am who he says I am. And you know what he says we are? A new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away, the new has come. The things that used to define you when you were not in Jesus Christ no longer define you, has no hold on you. The things that this world tries to tell us need to define us don't define us. Old person is dead. New person in Jesus Christ is alive. A new creation. That means completely new. Completely new. It's not like I'm just going to give you a little facelift. It's like a new creation. It's not like I'm going to clean you up on the outside, but inside you're kind of a mess, but you'll look good on the outside. He's like, I'm making you completely new. Jesus says, I will give you a new heart right to the very center of our being. A new creation. It does not Define it. And that way, when the enemy comes at you and me, and he's like, you think you got anything that God's going to use? You think you can't take this opportunity that he's given you? You think that you're going to do anything for the kingdom of heaven and the power of his spirit? You think he's going to use it? Really, really, really? He goes, you're a mess. I want you to remember this. Say, yeah, I am a mess. But isn't it amazing what grace does? I'm a new creation. I'm a son as I am. So in your face, Satan. No wonder the enemy works so hard to get us not to live the assurance we have in Christ because this changes everything. So question, what area or areas of your life do you need to remember this right now? What are the areas right now that as you've been hearing God's word, the Holy Spirit is bringing up? Maybe it's the guilt you're living with, the shame, the condemnation, the fear of man, the anxiety that's beating you down, the worry, the doubt. I mean, let's break it this way. Where right now is the enemy whispering to you, did God really say? Does that sound familiar? He's been doing that since Genesis 1. 1? No, 3 with Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Can you really trust him? Do you really think you're a new creation? Can you really trust that? See, that's what he does. He sows the seeds of doubt. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Can he really be trusted? And then you take him to Psalm 1830. You pull out the sword of the Spirit. You take him to Psalm 1830 that says, This God, his way is perfect. Every word of the Lord proves true, and he's a shield for those who take refuge in him. Get behind me, Satan. Did God really say? I love how John Piper puts this. He says, in this text, John's burden is to say, fellow soldiers, fellow sinners, there is good reason for hope. Sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. You know that Christ has been king forever, and be assured that his enemy and yours is defeated. Be assured Victorious assurance, he's defeated. Remembering the assurance I have in Christ leads to victorious living through Christ. Always. Remembering the assurance I have in Christ leads to victorious living through Christ. He is our victorious assurance. To live out my victory in Christ, I must remember the assurance I have in him, forgiveness. And as we remember this, it will lead us to pursue spiritual growth through him. Final point for today. Maturity. Look at verses 13 and 14. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. See what John does here? He identifies three different groups of people within the body of Christ and indicates the stages of spiritual growth or maturity within each one of them. Now, clarification. John's not saying here that one is more important than the other. Okay? He's not saying one's more important than the other, but he is saying that each of them have different levels of spiritual maturity in manifesting Christ's character Christ living out his life through us and that each one is essential for building up the body of Christ. For example, you can't ever have spiritual fathers if you first don't have spiritual children. Right? Families don't work like that either. And what's the body of Christ? A family. Okay? And so John gives us this both for our affirmation that we are in Christ and our identification to help us understand where we truly are in our walk with Christ. So use this as an evaluation for yourself. And there's three groups. You'll see them on the screen. First group he identifies as spiritual fathers. The modern day term for spiritual fathers would be like sages. Sages, those who walk in wisdom, who have experience or intimacy or knowledge about a subject. Look at 13a and 14a. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. 14a, I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. What's he doing? He's repeating for emphasis. He wants to emphasize that they know. The Greek word for fathers there means this. One who is in intimate connection or relationship with Christ and walks in wisdom. A spiritual father is one who walks in wisdom. doesn't mean he just has a bunch of knowledge, but what's what's wisdom? Knowledge rightly applied. That's the definition of wisdom. Knowledge rightly applied. So spiritual fathers have wisdom, they have experience, but they walk in knowledge. Deep knowledge of God who are spiritually mature in the faith and walk in wisdom. These are men that command respect and generally have been in the faith longer than others. And they're spiritual mothers. You look at Titus 2, so this is, this is talking about spiritually mature members of the body of Christ. Now, now, clarification, clarification. What John isn't saying here is that we must automatically equate the age of a Christian with maturity, okay? There are a lot of 70 and 80 year old. I just watched a testimony the other day of a 70 year old just giving her life to Christ. That's amazing. She's a spiritual child. Okay? All right? But in general, the principle is the longer one has been pursuing Christ, and the older they are, the more spiritually mature they are. Okay? All right? All right, so we got our spiritual fathers. Now look at look at the young men. So we've done the sages. Now we look at the young men. Here's the young men, he's talking about modern day term, warriors. Warriors. Okay? Look at 13b and 14b. It says this. I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Notice the battle terminology John's using here, okay? You've overcome the evil one, 14b, skip down. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, because the the word of God abides in you, and, another battle term, you have overcome the evil one, okay? Okay? And so these are younger Christians who are not as spiritually mature as their spiritual fathers, but they are maturing in their faith and are vigorous, strong, and committed to growing in and defending sound doctrine. They're vigorous of it. They've got the knowledge. They're learning of it. We want to uphold the truth. And the word of God, notice this, has to be their strength. Without the sword of the spirit in them, they have nothing. He says, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you, 14b, It's because of God's word in them that makes them strong. It's not because of their age. It's not because of their athletic ability. God's word makes them strong. And the word overcome there, so beautiful, so you've overcome the evil one, means this, to conquer or be victorious. You are victorious over the evil one. Young champions for Christ, actively involved in spiritual warfare against Satan. And they recognize that the victory is already won at conversion, but there's still a battle to fight. Loved ones, we're still in a battle. The Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. Okay? All right? There's still a battle to be fought, even though the victory's already been won. We have to understand that. It has to form our theology. And they have lots of strength, willing to die die on a lot of hills. Yeah, I'm gonna take the hill, take the hill. But they're growing in the needed wisdom that must accompany the application of knowledge. Hey, hey, hey. Question, strength, strength is not bad, it's needed. Strength isn't bad, but here's the follow-up. Is there wisdom with it? Hey, warriors, strength without wisdom too often is brutality. And you can run over a person pretty quickly and do anything but love them. You say, but yeah, I want to correct them in their lives and giving biblical correction. Listen, listen, loved ones. Saying the right thing in the wrong way is saying the wrong thing. Doing the right thing in the wrong way is doing the wrong thing. This is where we need wisdom. Knowledge rightly applied. Wisdom brings sensitivity. It brings a gentleness. How does the Holy Spirit correct us? Gently. Gently. It brings sensitivity to it. Three groups, fathers, sages, young men, the warriors. Number three, children, the infants. Look at 13c, the end of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. See, it's not the same Greek word as in verse 12. That was speaking to general Christians. This Greek term means little children under authority in need of training in righteousness. Infant Christians, brand new in the faith. Okay? These are young in the faith, new believers, who have a genuine relationship with Jesus and a basic awareness of biblical truth. I know I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I can't get to God apart from Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. A basic awareness. They need discipleship. They need mentoring. And look around. I was like, how do I illustrate this? Just look around you. I was saying this to Tom in prayer before the service. Like, this is the picture. Look around you, church, right here. Harvest Ottawa, loved ones, the family of God. This is the picture of the body of Christ John is describing here. Believers from all backgrounds at different places in their maturity in Christ. And instead, John doesn't set this up to be a competition. Instead of competing with one another to get ahead, we're called to come alongside one another in our pursuit of Christ as the head. Okay? We come alongside one another. In pursuing Christ as a head, nothing else comes close to this in the world. Everything else is a competition. Nothing else comes close. Standing side by side, infants, warriors, sages, standing side by side in their pursuit of Christ, loving for, caring for, praying for, discipling one another. Awesome. Awesome. There is. Know this. Know this. There is no greater joy, privilege, and pursuit in this world than to be a part of the Church of Jesus Christ. This is nothing touches that. Striving together, standing firm in the faith, knowing the victory's already. But Christians should be the most courageous people on the planet, and we get to strive side by side with one another and lift up our arms when we're tired. Bring that meal of encouragement or that prayer of encouragement. Give loving biblical correction, not running over people like the world says to get ahead, get ahead. No, no, no. Get low and love your brother. Awesome. Nothing touches that. I pray for a deepening love for the church so much in my heart and in yours. And as you think about this, ask yourself two questions. Final questions for today is this Where am I at in my walk with the Lord? You look at these three groups. You look at these three stages. Where am I at in my walk with the Lord? Are you in between a couple of them? Now, careful, careful, because our flesh will kick in. And so I'm just going to say, be honest. We all like to think we're further along than we actually are. Amen? All right. Where are you? Think about that. Ask the Lord if you're wondering, and he'll show you. And the second question is this. What is my next step to growing in spiritual maturity and living out the victory of Christ in a greater way? What's my next step to grow? I know where I'm at in these groups right now. Okay, so what's my next step? If I'm a young man, how do I gain wisdom? How do I glean wisdom? If I'm a new Christian, who am I seeking out to disciple me? All right? And you say, well, well, how do I grow in spiritual maturity? Okay, glad you asked. Last four things. Here we go. Ready? Number one. Four ways we grow in spiritual maturity. And there's no secret. Hey, loved ones, there's no secret here. There's no secret. We're always looking for the next brand new package thing. My wife, when I said, yeah, I think I'm going to close this week's message on the application of four ways we grow in spiritual maturity. She looks at me and goes, let me guess. Through God's son. I said, yes. So you see it. Put it up there. Through God's son, Jesus Christ. John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You can't grow without me. I need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because I need the power of Christ inside of me. And if that's you this morning, that's your first step right there. That's where everything starts for growing and being in God's family. Okay, so my wife said, yeah, through his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, she goes, through God's word, abide. I'm like, yes. Yes through God's word. See, there's nothing new here. These are simple truths that have endured for eternity for a reason. John 15, 7 to 8 says, if you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. By this, my father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Albert Moeller, one of my profs at seminary, said this, you see it on the screen, our spiritual maturity will never exceed our knowledge or practice of the Bible. Our spiritual maturity will never exceed our knowledge or practice of the Bible. Does that make you want to get into the Word every day? Not some legalistic check mark, but saying, God, it's the only way I grow. It's the only way. As God's word takes up residence in us, we become strong in him as it renews us. Look what it does. It renews us. It refines us. It corrects us. And it trains us in righteousness. And we gain victory over Satan in the battles that we face. When he whispers that doubt, you can take him to Romans 8.31. You can take him to Romans 8.1 and 2 because you know it. You know it. We recognize more and more the true victory we are fighting Yes, we are fighting from and stand on every promise in it in faith. Okay? Number three, through God's church. Ephesians four fifteen and 16. Four ways to grow in spiritual maturity. Through God's church. You'll see it on the screen. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Put it up. It says this. There it is. Rather speaking the truth in love. See that? There's the wisdom piece that's needed. Not speaking truth with bullying. Speaking the truth in Love. We are to grow up in every way to him who's the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Hey, 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 that means sages, infants, and young men. Every joint right there, which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Hey, heard this recently. I love it. Do you know one of the greatest gifts God has given to us, besides his son, the ability to fight together. The ability to fight together. To do life together in an uncommon community. You say, well, how do I get connected in the church? Corporate worship, making church a priority. Corporate service, getting plugged into a service team. These are all ways we grow in spiritual maturity. As you get known and loved, and you come alongside people who can pray for you and care for you, individual accountability with another person, praying with them, growing with them. There's party with the pastors today. That's the first step to getting plugged into the church. Lastly is this, four ways we grow in spiritual maturity through God's Son, through God's Word, through God's church, can't understate this. Through humility and repentance. Through humility and repentance. James 4.6 He says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, that grace, to grow to the humble. He opposes the proud. That Greek word for oppose means God's actively working against you in your pride to break you of it. Okay? turning away from your sin, turning towards God and living with a heart that says, God before me, you before me. Seeing our sin as God sees it and quickly turning in repentance from it when he reveals it. Don't sit in it. Don't sit in it. Quickly returning. Because John Owen said, and it's so, it's so pertinent, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I say, but it's just a little thing. Watch. Don't let it get a foothold. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Humility and repentance. To live out my victory in Christ, I must remember the assurance I have in Him and I must pursue my spiritual growth through Him. And so, my last question is this What's your next step? What's your next step? The Bible's so clear, its truth isn't going to change. What's your next step? Maybe it's to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's your next step. We're going to have people up the front to pray for you in just a moment. We'd love to talk with you about what it means. No judgment. It's the most loving thing we can do is to talk with you about that. Maybe it's for some of us to pick up your Bible consistently today. Starting today. Make getting in front of God's word your number one priority. Five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is, start there. And watch how God uses that. Maybe it's making church a priority Soccer games, hockey games. Look, can we reschedule around that? Look, making church a priority. Come. There's so much power when God's people come together. There's so much power, and Satan fights so hard to keep us out. Here's another one. Pray for someone to walk with, one-on-one, and accountability with. Someone to pray for you. Someone to do a Google chat with, go for coffee, whatever it is. There's people around here. I look around this room. I see tons of people with so much experience and maturity in Jesus Christ that would love to pour into you. You say, how do I get connected? Or maybe it's this, humble yourself under God's word in that area of your life and turn away in repentance from it and turn towards him. Because bottom line is this, we must understand, freedom and victory are always on the other side of obedience. You can fight it, but God gives grace to the humble. He poses the proud. Freedom and victory are always on the other side of obedience. And one day, coming very soon, you and I will stand. You and I will stand. When all the battle's done, and all the struggle, and all the sin is gone, you and I will stand before our magnificent Savior, And the only thing we're going to be able to say is you were worth it all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what awesome truth this is. That by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, we have overcome the evil one if we are in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for how you're growing it. I thank you for how you're shaping it and molding it. God, deepening our love for you and our love for one another. This isn't a numbers game, God. This is about seeing a generation raised up that is willing to say whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever you want. We humble ourselves under you, your time, your way. Because of the victory and assurance we have in Jesus Christ, we know that we have been redeemed, we are saved, and we are no longer slaves. God, I ask in Jesus' name right now, this would be a place of such encouragement for those who came in here and are weary, maybe doubting their salvation, maybe wondering: Am I ever gonna is this sin ever gonna be able to be defeated? It is defeated. Through Jesus Christ, it is defeated. And God, I pray we would walk in victory and repentance and humility and obedience to you, to be free. God, I ask for that. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. And so as we sing this last song, I pray we would live our days. So be a catalyst, Lord, live our days in light of eternity, the day that is coming. And we will say you are worth it all. I let go of all I have just to have all of you. And no matter what the cost, whatever it takes, Lord, I will follow you, in Jesus' name.